I went from designing big and prominent projects. I actually felt more anxiety about the small detached garage because there was like a higher level of ownership in designing it for my own firm, right? Hello and welcome to Architecture Beyond. I'm your host, Brandon Aaron Gibbs, founder of the course platform I Am Studio and director of Studio Motion Form. Architecture Beyond is an exciting new podcast about life after architecture and the stories of those taking their design and creativity gifts to impact the world beyond the studio. Be sure to listen to the end for your opportunity of connecting with Architecture Beyond. So hello and welcome to the Architecture Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Gibbs. In this episode of Architecture Beyond, we have a special guest, Joseph M. Cole, as an inspiring figure who has transitioned from community leadership and passion for architecture to becoming a successful firm leader at Culture Architecture and Design in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome to the show, Joseph. I am really glad to be here. Excited to have this uh, conversation with you. My first question is, could you share with us what initially sparked your interest in architecture and inspired you to pursue it as a career? So, you know, most people um, have some epiphany or some experience that draws them to architecture. I have literally always wanted to be an architect my entire life. Um, as a kid, uh, whenever my parents would take me into a grocery store, as soon as you enter the vestibule, there are these magazines uh, that are that have property listings within them. So as a kid, instead of coloring books, I liked the property listing magazines. So I grabbed the magazines that had houses and apartments and other buildings that were up for sale. And I would bring them home from the grocery store and I would literally redraw all of the buildings in those magazines. And I'll tell my parents, hey, I'm going to turn this this building into a library and hey, I'm going to turn this house into a duplex and rent it out. And my parents, they just thought it was a, you know, passing interest. But literally, I have been geared towards buildings and design my entire life. You know, if if I was an architect, I'm not not quite sure what I would be. Where did you grow up and how did that have influence? on your architectural background? I would say growing up in Nashville, um, as a kid, I would always uh, tell my parents as we drove around the city that, um, hey, that building would be uh, a cool apartment building or, hey, we should buy that house and renovate it. And uh, I always saw the potential in Nashville. And it's just it's funny now seeing the the I guess, expedited growth and rapid development of Nashville, because a lot of those things that I saw um, as a kid um, are becoming true now. Um, I, you know, love this city. I love my city. I'm very fond of my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee. So growing up here, you know, it really influenced me to see the potential in the city. Um, And now it's really um, uh, interesting to to grow as a designer and, a, and, and an architect as the city grows. So I feel like I'm developing at the, at the same time as the city. Um, you know, I graduated in 2003. I mean, from high school, went to undergrad at University of Tennessee, um, graduated in 2008. So graduated into the recession. So, you know, things are a bit of a, a pause or a lull when I, when I first graduated. But then Nashville saw the boom. And, you know, as I got licensed and, you know, decided, you know, started growing as a designer, as an architect, having more and more influence and decision-making capacity in the architecture. You know, I, I've definitely seen the, the synergy in, our, in the path of, of me as an architect and, and Nashville as a city as a whole. It's definitely Nashville is a part of your story. How about schooling? 
how did sort of where you were trained or where you had your first experiences sort of shape you or inspire you? I'll say with schooling, um, in architecture school, um, many of the students aspire to be um, star architects or have a similar, similar career path as the star architects. So, you know, your Frank Lloyd Wright, your Mies van der Rohe, you know, your Zaha Hadid. Um, and in that, they want to design these huge, glamorous, awe-inspiring buildings that are on the cover of magazines. And uh, for me, while I love design, I love architecture, um, that never really resonated with me um, because I didn't see the, the the correlation between what we were studying and what we were designing in class and what I would see in my neighborhood when I went, went back home to South Nashville. Um, and it was only until um, I started interning at the East Tennessee Community Design Center where I was uh, performing pretty much pre-design and schematic design services for nonprofits to help them raise money for their organizations. And I, you know, I started seeing how uh, design, architecture, uh, planning, programming influenced communities that looked a lot like me. Um, you know, there was uh, one experience I had in um, undergrad while um, interning at the Community Design Center. It was renovating a, a daycare that was, you know, overcrowded but much needed within a community. And uh, I was there measuring the building. And uh, I thought I was by myself, you know, uh, measuring the exterior of the building. And, um, you know, I happened to turn around, there was a kid there. And he was about four or five years old. And he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm measuring the building. And he was like, why? And I was like, well, I'm an architect and I'm designing the building. And he was like, but you have Jordans on. And I was like, well, you know, so do you. And he was like but you're black. And I was like, so are you. And the kid looked so perplexed. He sat there for a minute, he stared at me and then he just ran off. So after I finished doing field measurements, I came in to tell the client, Hey, I'm done. I'm leaving. And, um, the, uh, client said, Hey, uh, you know, we heard you met, you know, Jimmy in the, in the, in, on the playground in the backyard while you're doing field measurements. And I was like, yeah, you know, I met him. Nice kid. And he was like, you know, he came up to us and said, hey, do you know there's an architect in the back? And they were like, yeah. And they were like, he asked him, did you know he was black? And they were like, yeah. And then he walked off. And it's like, you know, I really do believe that um, exposure is key. You can't be what you can't see. Um, often architects aren't in black and brown and underserved communities. So, I, you know, I definitely do have a role in that. Um, but if it wouldn't have been for that internship, opportunity i may have never found my my true place in in architecture that's an insightful story you're the president of noma nashville um did that start before you started your own firm or can you tell about your history uh sort of with that organization and how it's impacted your firm entrepreneurship my my background with noma goes all the way back to to undergrad um, at UT, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, um, just like the profession at large, there were very few black and brown students, um, specifically black students within the program. And, um, you know, I was passionate to get to know everyone within the college that actually looked like me. 
Um, so by, you know, through meeting everyone, we decided like, hey, let's start a NOMA chapter. So I, along with another student, chartered the the NOMA chapter at University of Tennessee and pretty much got it restarted. It, it had been there and it pretty much had gone defunct as some students had graduated and we got it restarted. So uh, I've always been passionate about NOMA, even in undergrad. Um, you know, when I moved back to Nashville, we didn't have a chapter, but when I moved to New York, um, I actually had an opportunity to be in the New York chapter, which is known as NICOBA, and got really involved there. And it was great because, you know, uh, surprisingly, New York is a very hard place to meet people. Um, there are so many people there that already have their own things going. They're busy. They're working. They already have their clubs. They already have their friends, everything else. You know, it was really tough for me to find my community there. Well, I found it with NICOBA. NICOBA was a great organization. They do. Um, they have great programming within their chapter um, because they not only focus on emerging professionals, but actually business owners. So it was a great time there. But when I came back to Nashville, Nashville had uh, chartered a chapter a year or two before. And the president was Valerie Franklin with uh, Moody Nolan. And the chapter was doing great. So she she handed the chapter to me in great hands. Um, and I took it over for two years um, as president. Um, and I was big on, you know, continuing the, the growth and maturity of the chapter. So in that we, you know, implemented a lot more programming systems, processes, and I really empowered the, the, the e-board. So, you know, kind of delegated tasks and got everyone really, really involved. Um, but a lot of our time was spent planning um, the national conference, which was held in Nashville. You know, um, we were just coming out of a pandemic. So this was really our first real conference outside of pandemic. So people are excited to get back to the conference. But also there was a level of excitement about Nashville. You know, a lot of people hear about Nashville, that there are big things going on in Nashville. But, um, you know, actually I've never been here. So a lot of people came to the conference and we wanted to make sure that when people left, um, they felt like Nashville owed them nothing. So we, we planned a lot of great professional programming, but we also planned a lot of social events, which I feel like are paramount in organizations like NOMA that are centered on community. Um, and it was a great time. So, you know, um, you know, a lot of my two years were centered on um, planning that conference. And now we've, um, you know, we ended last year with me turning over the reins to, to Asia Dixon. So Asia is now the, the current president. And I'm I'm really excited for what she she has um, in store for the next chapter of NOMA. You know, the uh, conference we feel like has um, given us a lot of momentum here in Nashville. Um, often you hear a lot of uh, people say, what is NOMA? Why do we need NOMA? Why can't you just join the AIA? I think, especially here in uh, Middle Tennessee, after them seeing the um, resounding success of the conference, the great programming, the amount of people that came to, to, to the NOMA conference, that people get it now. Firms get it now. Firm leadership gets why we need NOMA. We have just a lot of momentum that we're going to continue to, to, to keep rolling on with. And the National Organization of Minority Architects is partnered with the American Institute of Architects and other organizations. That's a very unique perspective into architecture, you know, in terms of community and leadership and uh, giving back. I, I'm I, I also hear hearing the in, from our conversations about the different cities you've lived in and, and their impact. 
I guess, can you talk a little bit about that journey and sort of how did it get back to Nashville where you started? Went to Knoxville, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and I couldn't wait to get back home to Nashville. Um, at the time, everyone was flocking back to Nashville. Um, and then probably a few short months after we got here, I think a lot of firms realized like, hey, this recession is going to be serious. And a lot of my classmates, a lot of my classmates um, were laid off. So it was a pretty scary time in the profession. A lot of people that did have jobs stayed put because there wasn't anywhere else to go. Um, but I was at a great firm, Thomas Miller and Partners, and it was by far the best place I could have been to start my architectural career. I learned a lot. I worked on a lot of great prominent projects. I built a, a lot of meaningful relationships. Um, overall, great experience to, to start my career. But I always knew that uh, I wanted to be in a leadership role within the firm and I wanted to have ownership. Within a within a firm, and I didn't quite see maybe the, the the opportunity to have it there. Also, I have always been interested in business, whether it's before you know when I was a kid and you know trying to sell candy, or as an undergrad student, you know most of us were taking exclusively design classes. I was going out of my way and even taking summer school classes in order to get a business minor. I've just always been business oriented. So you know while I was practicing, I realized like. Hey, there's a lot of business that goes on um, behind the scenes to make sure these projects are realized. And I wanted um, an opportunity to um, really understand business um, uh, and, you know, wanted to make that my superpower uh, within architecture. So I decided that, hey, you know, I wanted to get a top notch MBA. I wanted to go to a top 20 school and um, I enrolled in Emory University in Atlanta. Um, on a consortium fellowship, which is a, a full ride. So got a six-figure scholarship to go get my MBA. So, I, you know, I got there and, um, you know, I really wanted to study real estate because of the synergy with architecture. But while I was there, I realized, you know what, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get um, exposure to everything unrelated to architecture. So I literally got a uh, emphasis in, in marketing, uh, entrepreneurship, general management. I studied all things tech and startup. Um, I went and studied abroad. We studied um, uh, the tech and startup incubator scene in Southeast Asia. We went to Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand. Had zero clue how this would factor into uh, architecture at all. Um, but I got a job at Gensler, New York in their tech startup and uh, media studio. So it all it all came together. So had opportunity to design some really prominent projects for, you know, tech for companies um, like IBM, Microsoft, um, you name it. We had opportunity to desi design it for those those big companies. Um, and it was a great it was a great experience. But, you know, over time, it was time for my wife and I to come back home and we moved back home to Nashville. And I briefly worked for a small firm before um, I was laid off um, at the start of the pandemic. Um, you know, uh, I worked for a firm that was hit by a tornado the first week of March and the second week of March. We started realizing that, hey, this 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 pandemic thing is serious. And then by the end of the month, um, I was laid off. And, you know, during that time, um, yeah, during that time, you know, fortunately having an MBA, having the Gensler experience, being licensed, I had plenty of certifications. You know, I could have easily gone to find another job. 
Um, but I decided um, after having a conversation with my wife, she was like, what would you do ideally if there was no pandemic, if money wasn't an issue, you know, what would you go out and do? And I said, you know, ideally, I would love to um, teach and I would love to have my own practice. Um, so she said, you know, hey, you already started culture. I was moonlighting at night on projects that, you know, weren't a good fit for the firm I was working for. And I was like, hey, let's turn this moonlighting thing into the the, the real deal thing. And I hit the ground running. I started t- teaching at Tennessee State University in their ar- architecture engineering program uh, remotely. I started teaching at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where I leveraged my MBA to start an entrepreneurship class. And then I was running my practice full time. Um, and we were doing a little bit of everything from churches to commercial projects to um, residential projects. So it's been a it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but I'm really enjoying the ride. You know, we're at a great point in our firm now where we're kind of turning over the leaf from the, the startup chapter into the, the, the validation and growth chapter where we're hiring, we're getting new projects, we're getting more prominent projects. So, you know, uh, you know, I am, I am excited about the next chapter. I feel like uh, in the moment, my entire path of architecture has been rocky from, you know, graduating to recessions, going through pandemics, moving around. Um, uh, but I, you know, in hindsight, I realized that, um, that was that was definitely God preparing me for uh, where I sit now. So, you know, you know I'm excited for um, what's to come of culture. You're listening to Architecture Beyond, an exciting new podcast about life after architecture and the stories of those taking the gifts to impact the world beyond the studio. This podcast is produced by I Am The Studio, a premium resource for training architecture and design professionals in the top industry software. If you need help with learning design software and techniques to a professional level, Please follow the link on our wow. page. That's uh, very impressive. Uh, I love that story. I love that uh, just everything falling together. I think everyone loves that. And especially after a major event like the recession, which like a lot of architects were affected by it. You know, either they couldn't find work, they were misplaced, or they're in the firm who had to cut people or projects. You answered my one of the thoughts I think a lot of people were asking, sort of how did you transition from working in firms to your practice as a young architecture principal, but like, what was it really like sort of from being, I'm working for someone to I'm now a principal. So, you know, I could say that that process, um, uh, was definitely scary at first. Right. I think that, uh, whenever, uh, we as architects, um, think about starting a firm, we almost treat it like a building, right? We want all of the plans, uh, designed and coordinated. We want the project manual. We want all the design and documents before the building is built. Um, if you wait until everything is perfected before you start your business, um, that is a, a terrible way to get into entrepreneurship. Uh, and you will make a lot of assumptions uh, about what your clients like. So I'm a big advocate uh, for starting before you're ready. So I teach a design entrepreneurship class at the University of Tennessee. And the whole concept of the class is most people think that you start a business and you pretty much implement steps and you move forward, right? But in art, in, in, in entrepreneurship, it's all about iteration, right? It's about coming up with a hypoth- hypothesis, figuring out how you can test that hypothesis, developing a solution, and then seeing if that solution works, right? And if it doesn't, you go back to the drawing board. 
So, you know, with, with starting my firm, you know, there were some assumptions I made at the very beginning that, you know, everyone would, you know, uh, flock to culture because of my design background with Gensler. And they didn't, right? Because when people hire an architect, regardless of where they're hiring them from, they assume they're going to get great design, right? So I had to figure out what my clients really wanted. Um, I will say that, you know, I went from designing big and prominent projects, and I actually felt more anxiety about the small detached garage that I was designing on my own, right? Because there was like a higher level of uh, ownership in designing it for my own firm, right? So, you know, now I am really uh, fortunate uh, for the people we've had on the team because the people on the team have um, done a great job of buying into the culture of the firm, no pun intended, um, and really developing ownership of the projects and just wanting to make sure that all the projects are successful and ultimately make sure that, you know, our firm is successful. That's very insightful. Well, what challenges did you face in establishing and leading your own architecture firm and how did you overcome them? I would say, you know, there, there's quite a few challenges, you know, um, starting as a full-time entrepreneur and a pandemic uh, being one of them, right? You know, how do you um, have a, you know, I had a company that was centered on placemaking where you couldn't go to places, right? Like I'm starting a firm and we're exclusively doing things on Zoom or whenever we're doing a site visit, we're standing like 10 feet away from one another, right? So um, it was very difficult in the initial phases of uh, starting my business. I also say um, um, often there's a statistic that black and brown businesses are often over mentored and underfunded, right? So there are plenty of programs out there that will provide mentorship and assistantship um, from high-end advisors and big companies, right? But at the end of the day, it is literally a cash is the lifeblood of a business, right? So, you know, first off, first off, there needs to be more programs to provide funding for black and brown businesses. But that is something that definitely helped me. Um, I, uh, I work here um, in Nashville out of the Entrepreneur Center right now. And um, they had some grant opportunities that uh, definitely assisted us in buying infrastructure and computers and um, helping us out and getting started. Um, also, Re uh, Republic Bank um, uh, giving us the community loan fund. Um, in that in the community loan fund, it provided us with cash flow. That's pretty much like gasoline on the fire, right? You know, there's only so much goodwill and bootstrapping and long nights you can do to grow your firm. Sometimes you actually need the cash to buy buy a computer and hire someone and get a desk. Like, you know, cash is actually a real need. Um, I will say another big break for us was uh, teaming with Populous um, on the Vanderbilt Athletics Project. So uh, right now we're working with Populous on um, a renovation of Vanderbilt University's football stadium, a $300 million renovation. We're working on a visiting team locker room. We're working on a uh, basketball practice facility. Um, those have been um, great opportunities, right? So like our, you know, cross-section of our projects right now, the smallest is a detached garage with apartment above, and our biggest is a $300 million renovation, right? So we're literally touching a bunch of different 
project types. Um, and it's, you know, exciting time in our firm. You know, we're going to start honing in on specific uh, project types that are, are good and lucrative for us. And we're going to continue to look at other business opportunities. That's awesome. And that's it's very exciting hearing about those projects. And uh, I know I've, I've seen some of those and they're just see them take shape. Uh, it's very inspiring. Uh, I guess um, what is your, your approach to balancing business growth while maintaining design excellence or that design look? Because I know you were talking about high end before, you know, how do you figure that out? Because there's definitely a lot of things that bring in money. And the question is, like, how do you navigate that? When it comes to um, design excellence, often architects, um, unfortunately, use design excellence, but really mean um, ego-driven design, right? They want something that is readily um, recognizable and attributed to them, right? But at the end of the day, you got to realize that it is not your building. It is the client's building, all right? So in that, you want to make sure that you design the best project possible uh, within those parameters. Now, I will say that means that when you start a project, and when I say start, I mean from the initial consultation before contracts are signed, you have to make sure that the client that you're interviewing is in alignment with your overall firm goals, right? If the client that you're you're interviewing, if they're all about get it done, get it done quick, get it done cheap, right? They're not, you, you know, the project is not going to be design excellence, uh, regardless of how how talented you are, right? You got to make sure that you're um, aligning yourself with clients that align to your overall um, business goals. You know, that, that that is just personally my own belief. I guess, um, in what ways did your background as an architect influence your approach to entrepreneurship? And how did you leverage architectural expertise uh, for that entrepreneurial endeavor? Would you would you have considered yourself an entrepreneur first or an architect first? I would say, not to dodge a question, but I would consider myself a problem solver first. And I think... Um, being a problem solver is the root of being a, a architect, right? We are complex problem solvers that use design in our solutions, all right? Um, so when it came to um, uh, going back to business school, you know, um, we each had cohorts. And, you know, in my cohort, we had someone who was an HR guru. We had a Fulbright scholar. We had someone who was literally a rocket scientist. Um, and we had an accountant and we had an engineer. And literally all of us brought something different to the table in assignments. And for me, often what I would bring to the table was uh, a comprehensive solution, right? You know, sitting back and assessing all of the various factors to come up with a solution. And I do attribute that to my background in architecture, right? You know, whenever we're coming up with a solution, you got to think about so many different things from constructability to time to budget to client desires to is it aesthetically pleasing, right? Um, and that um, type of problem solving directly impacts everything we do from, you know, how we structure our fees, how we um, allot and distribute funds within our business, what projects we go after, 
these job postings that we're about to put up, like it is all influenced by this um, level of design thinking that was fostered um, by starting as, you know, problem solver in architecture school. You don't see that gap. You see that that unified principle of solving problems. That's that's really insightful. And that that's how architects should, should really approach that, I think, as well. Um, to avoid that that challenge, that big filter. Yeah, you know, it's like it's people look at it as either or, and it really is both and. It's there, there, there's synergy between the two. They're they are not they are not separate. I really think what you've done with Noma and the work of the National Organization of Minority Architects is really a it's a good model for architects. Like I guess if you could talk about Noma's founding, I. I know we don't have that much time, but the idea is, as a Noma, as a Noma president, you're, you know, you're hitting on some of the challenges the architecture industry has had over the years, and so I was asking, sort of, what what challenges have you encountered in promoting diversity? I guess that's diversity and equity is a big, big push. DEI is a, it's definitely a a big push uh, right now, um, not only within um, architecture, but business as a whole. My wife has uh, her own DEI and inclusive leadership consultancy firm called Career Thrivers. So we actually talk about this pretty often, right? Because there are a lot of, I guess what I would call problems within architecture that I think are isolated to architecture that uh, she'll tell me, uh, my wife Brittany will tell me, you know, there's a through line between engineering, construction, construction, finance, HR, tech, like you'll, you'll see those same problems everywhere, right? So I'll say that, you know, there, there's clearly a problem right now with a lack of uh, persons of color uh, within the profession of architecture. Um, that can only be corrected through, uh, in my opinion, um, allyship. In um, allyship through um, um, People in leadership positions, primarily um, um, Caucasian people, to um, create opportunities for advocacy, for um, uh, increasing the pipeline of creating more black and brown people within uh, the profession of architecture, being intentional about hiring more people um, that are black and brown. And then once they're within their firms, um, making sure that they get uh, equal opportunity at leadership positions. Uh, I think that there there's some unintentionality um, in leadership and promotion within our industry. Often people that are promoted look like um, and have very similar uh, attributes and views of the ownership, right? Which um, leads to homogenous leadership within the profession of architecture. Most of the leadership within architecture is uh, you know, conservative white males, right? And that's because there's not an intentionality between um, having diversity uh, within um, uh, their leadership. And I also say that, um, you know, another way allyship looks is uh, being intentional about partnering with um, black and brown owned businesses, right? So, you know, there are very big companies that, you know, when they go, when they go after very prominent clients, the doors open for them automatically, right? Or why not partner with black and brown businesses uh, that, that bring something to the table, not just being black and brown, but design prowess, uh, new perspectives on design um, to help build out your design team. 
Yeah, I I see the challenge as looking back on architects like Paul Revere Williams, who's in all his excellence and impact, the industry just is just like it's 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 like a it was so limited, and the idea is now architecture is saying, hey, we want to help communities. It's it's foolish to say we're going to help your community. We're going to keep all the opportunity within our community. I think you want your entire city to flourish and you want your entire community to flourish and i think that's that's one thing i see noma is doing is like revealing hey look you you know stop looking at us helping them and seeing us as one community i think that that diversity bringing a unity is one way that we can see that and i, th I think noma is encouraging and i think people are waking up to that but uh, you know there's a lot of distance to go for sure uh before essentially People aren't just saying, oh, look, there's a one black guy who's an architect, you know, and, you know, all I could be is a basketball player or an actress or an actor. Well, we have a, we're almost done. I know the time frame. Thank you so much. I really want to talk about, um, but I have a question. What would you say to an architect, uh, whether they're a minority or someone who just sort of has that challenge of saying, hey, I want to achieve a firm ownership one day, what would you advise them if they're just starting the industry or leaving school to get started on that path? I would say uh, for any designer within um, the profession of architecture interior design, if you want to have an impact within our industry, you need to double down and hone in on your superpower. And I feel like your superpower is your outside interest and how they interrelate within architecture. So for me, I have always been interested in business and I found a way to develop a synergy between the built environment and my passion for business. I think that um, uh, designers and, and, and firms alike should really embrace the, 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 the outside interest and figure out how to leverage that as a competitive advantage uh, within their firm. You know, you take uh, Brandon, Brandon is a guru on all things architecture technology. He's great with, you know, interviewing and podcasting and amplifying people's voices. It would be a shame if Brandon only practiced architecture in a traditional way, right? No, like he has to embrace everything he's good at because it adds value to his employers, to his eventual firm, and to the profession as a whole. Hey, if you are a, um, uh, writer, then continue to write and figure out how to, you know, integrate that within your practice of architecture. If you love film and movies, figure out how to integrate that within your practice of architecture. If you love floral design, figure out how to integrate it, right? We are not, um, you know, people that can just leave, you know, our personal interest at home and solely do architecture and then go back home and do what we really love. No, we got to figure out how to blend those things. And I think that the firms that create environments for their employees to blend those things are going to be the firms that um, really have some lasting value and, you know, carve out a, a really strong competitive niche within our market. It's very insightful and very valuable. Everyone has a superpower. They need to have that active. Um, I guess uh, one final thing. Can you let us know how to get in touch with culture and the work of Joseph Cole and maybe uh, prospective employees, uh, people who just want to learn from what you have to say? 
So definitely, we would we would love to hear from you know anyone that is uh, interested in joining the team. You can find us on uh, our website at designwithculture.com. Um, also, follow us on Instagram, Culture Architecture and Design. Um, follow us on LinkedIn. Um, you can reach out to me, Joseph M. Cole, at LinkedIn. But you know, I look forward to you know hearing from the architecture community. We got a lot of great things going on in culture. Um, and we can't wait to just let the world know we're going through a bit of a brand refresh now, but we are going to be unveiling a lot of projects. It has been a a whirlwind over the last three years, but um, we have knocked out quite a few projects. Like Brandon right now, we have uh, six projects under construction. Like we are, we're, we're rocking and rolling right now. Um, and I'm excited to, to let the world know what we've been working on. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Uh, this has been Brandon. I'm your host for Architecture Beyond. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and check the links in this episode to find out more about Joseph and his work. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for joining us today on the Architecture Beyond podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of hearing the entrepreneurial story of architect Joseph Cole overcoming adversity and setbacks to launch the successful and inclusive architecture firm Culture Architecture and Design. You can find out more about Culture Architecture and Design at culturearch.com. If you are interested in learning more about the newest design software and techniques, visit our sponsor I Am The Studio at iamthestudio.com and sign up with our newsletter Design Insights Weekly. In the next episode of Architecture Beyond, we'll explore the link between the art of sketching and the craft of architectural ideas with design expert, design sketching author, Alma Hoffman. Be sure to check it out. This has been Brandon and the Architecture Beyond crew. Catch you in the next episode.